Welcome to a brand new series of This Study Shows, a podcast from Wiley Research. I'm Marianne O'Hotter. And I'm Dan George. We're really excited to get started on a new season of this show, and I think you're going to love what we've got planned. From data visualisation to the world's first vagina museum, from designing video games to saving the planet through concrete, we're going to be sharing the fascinating stories of people who are changing the world through their science communication. Not only that, but we've got a brand new mini-series that we'll be dropping into our feed fortnightly. It's called This Study Show's Spotlight. In the show, Dr Samuel Ramsey, aka Dr Sammy, will speak to the researchers behind the headline-grabbing viral science stories. And we're really looking forward to sharing our collaboration with the Earth Optimism Alliance later in the series. It's going to be full of joyful, hopeful stories about conservation success. Wow, there's a lot going on, Marianne. Yeah. I guess we should probably get started. Absolutely. Let's do it. So this week, we're looking at where research meets money. A couple of weeks ago, Dan and I both spat into plastic tubes (laughs) and sent it off into the ether, no, into the the postal service, service. (laughs) and um, in order to have our DNA tested. Mm. And we recently got an email saying, your results are ready. Would you Mm. like to view your health and ancestry reports? And obviously, because we're always hungry for the truth, we both said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a good example isn't it how how, um people are are paying for access to science yeah so the service we both signed up for is an online genetic testing service it costs 199 dollars for a health and ancestry report so a set of reports telling you about everything from carrier status for certain genetic inherited conditions to interesting details about your physiology or character that might be kind of somewhat hardwired in your DNA Mm. through to kind of where your your family or heritage might be from and how much Neanderthal you might have in your DNA, (laughs) which I particularly enjoyed. (laughs) Now, the thing about home DNA tests is that they are big business. Approximately 30 million people around the world have taken a test And one of the big questions is, are we actually equipped to understand the things that we're asking for? Because once you've seen those results, you can't unsee Mm. them. What are your thoughts on, you know, handing the public the keys to their own genetic data? Yeah, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because in some ways you think, well, that's good, you know, because you should be able to find out more about you because it's your DNA and it's good if, you know, a company is allowing you to do that. But I think it goes back to what you were just saying. It, you know, are we equipped to to interpret that data in the right way, or is it is it just going to make everyone rush to their GP because they're worried, you know, they've got some life threatening disease? And of course, there's always that risk, isn't there? That it sort of um, reifies DNA. It becomes this deterministic thing that tells you who you truly are, mm. rather than all the other stuff, which is who you thought you were, but you're not really that because your DNA, proper science, tells you something different, which, um, as an anthropologist, I thoroughly reject because <laughs> you are not your DNA. But it's, it's, it's sort of become like, um, it's almost like a God molecule, isn't it, in, in kind of modern culture? It is 
you know, your true essence, your soul is in this like little double helix in every every cell of your body. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't wait to find out how much of a Neanderthal you are. Yes, yes. <laughs> Because we have got our results right here. They contain information about where our ancestors originated from, our health risks for certain conditions, what colour our eyes are, do we have dimples, do we have flat feet? Certain things that I didn't even realise were kind of encoded at all in my genetics. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> yeah. Folks, you're going to have to wait until the end of the show when we're going to talk about our DNA results with a specialist, Dr Jason Vassy. Uh, so hold tight until then. I know it's hard, but you can manage. <laughs> but before that, let's explore a few other examples of the communication that happens where research meets money. And we're going to look at this from a few different angles. First up, the world of video games with our first guest. So I'm Dr. Mitty Kandeka. I'm somebody who works and teaches in the video game design space. I'm currently um, an assistant arts professor at New York University. And then I also am CEO of a mobile game development company called Glow Up Games, where we're creating uh, games featuring diverse characters, uh, games which really sort of, you know, speak to who's out there and playing games, which is everybody. Marianne, something I've spoken about on our podcast before is the fact that people sometimes ask me why I work on radio astronomy when I could be using my science, my information to solve other problems like cancer, for example. <laughs> you they think really that, ask you that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, oh. the, the sort of why, why bother question. You know, we've got <laughs> these big global challenges. Why are you bothered about what's going on in the universe? Oh. Yeah. And, and you'd think that, that Mitu might get this sort of criticism too because she works in video games. But actually, the fact that there's a commercial aspect to her work actually works in her favour. I feel like with video games specifically, because of the business side of them and because they're such a lucrative market, I feel like now like that's the justification that people use to be like, oh, well, I can see why you're doing, you're sort of working in this space or whatever. I certainly justified it to my parents in terms of, well, it's a very lucrative industry, so, you know. <laughs> Mitu works both in the research and the business side of video games. This is why she thinks it's important to keep a foot in both camps. Research matters, right? Because honestly, here's the thing, if we leave it to the commercial side of the industry to drive things forward, we're not actually going to capture like the full range of possibility of the space because, yeah. you know, so much like there's no experimentation that happens. So we need the research. We need the research not only for its own sake, but also, you know, it's it's a way for more types of people to also be involved because, you know, it's about uh, not just repeating kind of what has worked already. Mm. It's about like exploring new avenues. Mitu has to pitch her ideas and win business in order for her company, Glow Up Games, to succeed. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But all those experiences have taught her valuable lessons about how to make connections with people. At Glow Up, we went through a, um, a tech and business accelerator program called, uh, called Techstars. And one of the things that they sort of teach you is, oh, you know, you open when you're talking to investors, you open with your elevator pitch and you, you know, you, you have that down and that's very practiced. And, you know, and then you sort of like let the conversation go from there. And, you know, and, and we've had some success in doing that, certainly. But honestly, the thing that has led to the best success for, for us 
uh, when we're pitching, when, when I say us, that's me and my co-founder Latoya, is when um, mm -hmm. we just open, not even with the business idea or anything, just by talking about ourselves and our backgrounds. People are often just respond to that because you're sort of telling your own story and you're talking sort yeah. of by virtue of doing that, you're talking about like why you should be the person to be working on this, uh, on this business. And, uh, you know, and they can sort of see the passion in that. Not only is it important to communicate your personal story and your passion for the work, but it's also important to consider that even if you're pitching to experienced investors, they might not understand the process of science like you do. So take time to share how your research works. Being able to communicate clearly about your research interests and about sort of what your research really needs in terms of time, in terms of, you know, space for exploration is super important because otherwise you're going to get just get pulled in all these different directions and, you know, like be encouraged to sort of take shortcuts with things that you might need to spend more time like developing or whatever. Research, because here's the thing, like research cannot, can take time as we know, right? Like research takes time, uh, which is often at odds with what business wants or what commercial yeah. interests want. So I think that is the biggest tension to manage sometimes. The thing is, as we know, the world of business is not equitable. Glow Up Games are working really hard to increase diversity in the world of video games, both in terms of representation on screen and the development side. You know, I'm at, at heart first, like I'm I'm a creative technologist, I'm a game designer, I'm a I'm an engineer and a researcher. And hmm. those are the things that I would love to like just be able to sort of, you know, be able to do and sort of, you know, get on and build in those spaces. But the mm -hmm. reason that we, you know, we started Glow Up uh, is because we realized that, oh, as women of color co-founders, like myself and my co-founder, Latoya Peterson, we were just coming up against all of these barriers that, you know, we didn't even think we, we were going to because we're both experienced yeah. veterans uh, who've been around the space. And so we realized, you know, um, we we need to be having these conversations more and more about like who is getting sort of funded and who um who is allowed in the space that was mitu kandeka assistant arts professor at new york university and ceo of glow up games dan how much time do you spend thinking about concrete <laughs> um, not very much, although I did read a book by a brilliant engineer, Roma Agrawal, um, called Built, and she has a whole chapter on concrete. Oh, OK. Mm. Well, you are ahead of me, or you were, at least, until I spoke to our next guest. Mm. I honestly had never really thought very much about concrete, um, <laughs> but it's obviously everywhere. It's a massive deal, and it's partly because... We're running out. We're running out of sand around the world. There are certain countries, India, for example, where sand dredging, because you need a particular type of sand, river sand rather mm. than desert sand, because desert sand is too small. You need kind of good grains of sand to go mixed with the cement to make the concrete, mm. um, where basically there isn't enough river sand. And so there's illegal dredging of rivers, which are what? these... Super important wildlife habitats. They have massive impact on downstream flooding, all sorts of things. Um, wow. And there's a black market where people are literally losing their lives over battles over illegal sand. Wow. And the carbon impact of the way we build our buildings is huge. And it's kind of one that we don't, in the public particularly, pay that much attention to. You know, everyone's kind of, 
worried about the Amazon rainforest. They're worried about plastic pollution. Mm. But cement is the source of 5% of the world's carbon output. So if cement was a country, it would be the fourth biggest polluter, just behind India and on a par with Russia. Wow. So our next guest is researching into ways that we can change the way we create our built environment so that, A, people can still make money, we still have buildings to live in and work in, but it doesn't have such an impact on the environment. How do you balance those competing needs? This is a problem that Dr John Orr is working to solve. So I'm a university lecturer in engineering at the University of Cambridge, and I lead a research group looking at how to reduce the whole life carbon of built assets like buildings and uh, bridges and so on. As John outlines, the problem is concrete is a really useful material, but it obviously comes at a cost. We add cement, sand, water, aggregate, and we make this wonderful liquid rock, we often call it. Um, it's a, it is a wonderful material, and that's why we make so much of it, you know, two metres cubed per person roughly every year. Uh, the issue is... That in, in the, the world? In the world, yes. Every person in the world? My gosh, so that is a lot. It's something like 4.2, 4.3 trillion kilograms of cement manufactured every year, and that turns into an awful lot of concrete. So the issue is not that, that it's you know, a bad material, it's that in the process of making cement in the kiln, the hot oven that rotates and makes cement, there's a chemical reaction that goes on, and that chemical reaction releases carbon dioxide. So even if you have a zero carbon fuel coming in, you're always releasing CO2. So even if we have you know, completely renewable energy for our cement plants, there will be CO2 released. And the interesting thing is that with all our technological advancements in other areas, the way we make buildings hasn't really changed for hundreds of years. In fact, it's actually quite similar to how the Romans were doing it a couple of thousand years ago. You cast concrete columns or beams in wooden boxes because you're pouring this wonderful liquid rock into a form, and that's a quick and efficient way of building structures. But it's not quite necessary because it uses way more concrete than we actually need for the building to be solid. To be blunt about it, people don't really value the material that we're using. Cement and concrete are super, super cheap in financial terms. Uh, but they're expensive in carbon terms. So whilst we can make cement almost anywhere in the world, actually, we should probably view it as a scarce resource. And if you do that, then suddenly you're thinking about how to use as little of it as possible. And that takes you down the road of, of very elegant and low material use structures. But, but that's not been our culture for the last sort of 20, 30 years. We've, mm. you know, we, don't, we don't put a carbon price on materials and so we can use as much as we like. And the, the way that the construction sector tends to work is the lowest cost. And so if using a little bit more material helps you reduce costs, then of course that's what you would do because you know, you're a business working on very, very small margins. And so that, again, is part of the cultural change that we need is to to not just value that upfront cost, but to value the whole life cost of a, an asset. In terms of communicating the research that you're doing and, and I guess, effective, affecting change through that whole system, mm -hmm. how, how do you go about doing it? How do you translate your technical research into practical application? Yeah, it's a real, real challenge. I mean, my PhD, which was a while ago now, I, I worked on something called flexible formwork, which is essentially making... Uh, funky architectural shapes which are highly optimized and you use a piece of fabric to allow you to do that so it's all very 
uh, sort of easy in, in my view. And when I was doing that research, I thought, well, why aren't people doing this? This is so obviously a good idea. Um, and actually, there's a lot of inertia in the construction sector. People have their ingrained ways of doing things. And if you go to a, a company or a conference and simply say, this is the right way, you should all change, actually, people might might listen. But once they go back to their desks, they don't really, you know, it's, it's hard to translate that. People feel like they're being told off. So I think with the MICOM project, the Minimizing Energy and Construction project, what we realized is you have to communicate on the listener's terms. So rather than having this sort of very teacherly, uh, this is the right way to do it, we're going to tell you off, that doesn't really work. Instead, say, all those things we've done in the past, wonderful, we've got fantastic infrastructure, we've you know, improved the lives of loads of people, that's absolutely true. And these are the opportunities to do things even better and to make it a positive message. And that's that's kind of a key thing, I think, that once you say there's fertile ground to save material, if you do this, you can have a business opportunity, you've, you know, the first company to, to work in this field, you might get clients who come and ask you for this work. And, and it's actually really a positive thing rather than making people feel like they're being told off. Yeah, I think it's a really important point, isn't it? That whatever the research says in, in sort of objective science terms, fundamentally, the people enacting it are humans with all our complex psychology and our fragile egos and our, our sense of wanting to not be the bad guys. No, absolutely. And it reminds me of the quote from Richard Thaler, which is, if you want somebody to do something, make it easy. And and that's the, if you make it easy, if you make it fun, make it positive, rewarding. I think that's a really important, positive spin to put on things. You sound very optimistic and upbeat, despite the <laughs> challenges. I mean, do, do people shut doors in your face or they go, oh, we need to listen to Dr. John? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, definitely. Doors get shut all the time. Uh, in the research world, you put in funding proposals and people say, oh, no, that's a terrible idea. Um, you go to conferences and people think, oh, no, we don't want to think about using less material. But my own personal view is that this is the right thing to do. There is a, a requirement to dematerialize. We have to start thinking about not demolishing buildings, but reusing them or extending their life. Um, otherwise, we're not going to get to net zero. I think that's kind of a basic fact. Thanks to John Orr, engineer at the University of Cambridge. Right, it's time, Marianne. Have you got your results in front of you? <gasps> da -da -da. Yes, I do. Right, give me, give me a headline. Okay, I am somewhere between... Zero and two percent Neanderthal. Oh, me too. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Uh, like along with you, me, and most of you know, Eurasia. <laughs> um <laughs> half of my ancestry is from South India, the other half is from Eastern Europe. Uh not a huge surprise given that I thought my mum and her family were from South India and my father and his family were from Poland. Hmm. Well, that, yes, that's good. That's good <laughs> so, you, uh, you know, not not as many skeletons in that particular closet. I'm less likely to have dimples. Hey, I can see your dimples right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a slightly increased increased risk of age related macular degeneration, so I could be visually impaired as I. I grow old because two mm. variants were detected. What I don't know is how many variants. You know, it's, it's like two variants, like all of the variants. So it, I've got like a massive risk of, of this in the future or is two in a thousand or, you know. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? So I had two health traits 
detected where I had a slightly increased risk. One was uh, for celiac disease, which mm. is where you are, your, your body can't tolerate gluten. Yeah. And then the other one was a type of blood clot. I'm more at risk of, of developing a type of blood oh. clot. And you kind of go, oh, hang on a minute. And it was one variant detected. And it says you have one of the two genetic variants we tested. And you kind of think, well, what does that mean? Yeah. And you kind of go, oh, well, hang on a minute. And the variants included are the ones that are most common and best studied in people of European descent. So it tells you all these qualifiers, but that's not really that helpful because I kind of think, well, half of me isn't European yeah. in terms of my ancestry. And so what if there are lots of markers for this particular condition in the bit they didn't test or in the bit that isn't represented in terms of their database? which they're comparing me to. What do you do with that info? Yeah, exactly. That's what you, you sort of, I've got, I've now got all of this information about me. Yeah. What, what do I do with it? Do I feel qualified to do anything about it? And, you know, if, if we had gone to a different company who had a different reference database, would we have got different answers? Yes, exactly. So let's speak now to Dr. Jason Vassey, Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School and Primary Care Physician at the VA Boston Healthcare System. Thank you so much for joining us, Jason. Delighted to be here. Hello. So you use genetic testing both in your research and in a clinical capacity. Tell us a bit more about that. That's right. So I'm, I'm a primary care provider. I'm not a medical geneticist or genetic counselor by training, but I do bread and butter clinical medicine, taking care of general medical conditions. And so what the average primary care provider might order for genetic testing is very different from some of the cutting edge uh, genetic or genomic tests that might be available in research contexts or in very uh, specific consumer contexts. And presumably the the role of, of DNA sequencing has absolutely changed modern medicine. Well, that's right. Yeah. So that's that's why this has now become a much more a, a more pressing research, if not clinical question, is because the technology is so much more available and less expensive. It is conceivable that every person, every patient could have access to some kind of information about their, their genetic makeup uh, through sequencing or through genotype arrays. Um, so now it's, on to, it's up to us to decide, is it worth doing that? What's the trade-off? What are the risks? What are the benefits? Um, and if we identify a favorable benefit to risk ratio, then this is maybe something we should implement more broadly in primary care. Now, how does that impact how we should be thinking about direct-to-consumer tests. So the kind of thing that, that Dan and I have just done, where we've paid $200, we've got a bunch of information on a, a kind of a, a website. I mean, those some of those things are interesting. Some of those things are unexpected. Should I be worried about this particular yeah. condition? Like, I would hope that we're both moderately scientifically literate. Speaking for myself, Dan, I'm a little bit baffled as to what to make of the information that I'm now armed with. Yeah. Right. It really is a disruptive technology. You know, I don't know if you asked your own um, healthcare providers their opinion about doing this before you did it, <laughs> but no. it, might, it might come as a surprise <laughs> to them if you brought the results to them. Um, you might get a variety of reactions and you shouldn't be surprised if, they, if, your, if your healthcare provider, him or herself, also doesn't really know what to do with the information, depending on what kind of results you got. Um, they'll, they'll probably need to ask a colleague who's a medical geneticist or who is a genetic counselor or who has more expertise 
Um, they might seem a little frustrated that you did this because it really does go outside of the the typical medical setting. Ah, but on, really? on the other on the other hand, though, you know, it's information that's available. It has some degree of validity behind it, and we can kind of discuss what it means, what it doesn't mean, what uh, what the limitations are. Um, so why not? Why? I mean, you're curious. Uh, you hopefully kind of prepped yourself to think. You know, what, is this kind of information I would want to know? Now the question, once you have the results, is what to do with them and who can help you decide what to do with them. I was I was quite struck by how much, how many different kind of infographic tutorials and sort of consent interfaces you had to go through before you actually saw any of your results. And it says, you know, um, if you've ever been diagnosed with anxiety or depression, you might have more emotional difficulty with these reports. It's that kind of idea of, you know, like once you've opened the box, you can't shut the box again. Mm. And then it also said that genetic testing for these conditions in the general population is not currently recommended by any boldened healthcare professional organisations. And you're like, huh, OK. So if I did take these results to my doctor... I would imagine they'd be a little bit annoyed that I'd, you know, randomly gone online, handed over all my DNA and then been told a bunch of stuff that I don't understand. That's right. Especially if you then turn to them and said, here, help me understand what this means. <laughs> and they'll say, I, di I didn't order that in the first place. Yeah, I, wish you yeah. hadn't, I wish you hadn't done that. Yes. Yeah, stop grubbing about in things you don't understand. Right. But would right. they, as primary care providers, would they... Um, take this information and be as confident in this information as if, you know, either Mary or I had gone to our GP and said, can you do some genetic tests on us? Does it have the same validity for a, a primary care provider? It, it really depends. There is a range of genetic and genomic tests um, done. And, and the context matters. Is it done in a research lab? Is it done in a clinical lab? What kind of technology was used? Is it a genotype array? Is it sequencing? Uh, the it, it's impossible to answer that question con to compare the the validity between the results you have and and what a clinical what a physician might order. What about counselling for people? Sort of genetic counselling. You know, is there is a lot of sort of the science communication that goes into that? Oh, absolutely. So genetic counselling is a profession in and of itself, um, and we should, you know, if 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 I haven't already, I should highly encourage listeners to for any of these questions to see if they can get referred to a genetic counselor or schedule an appointment with a genetic counselor for any questions before or after a test, you know, have, mm -hmm. helping talking to a counselor before to help to decide is a test right for you? And if so, which one is crucial, but eh, worldwide, there are not, not enough genetic counselors to go around. Um, oh. And there are, and yet increasingly, as we said, people will have greater access to information about their DNA. So the demand for genetic counselors is going to outstrip supply. So now it's an active area of research about in which specific context, which specific patients might most benefit from genetic counseling. Um, and are there other more automated ways, either through chatbots or through well-designed websites that can walk a patient through the results that can mm -hmm. help um, provide greater access to genetic counseling services? I guess the defenders of, of these test results uh, would say, well, actually, you know, forearmed is forewarned. If you know that you've got this slight predisposition, then maybe you could do something about it, whether that's modifying lifestyle factors or talking to your physician. And then the flip side of it, the thing that Dan and I were also surprised about is that you've got this kind of slightly disconcerting combination of 
like here's a bunch of health data which might be quite serious and give you a lot of stuff to think about and then here's some stuff about whether you've got flat feet curly hair dimples and you're like whoa my head can't cope with that <laughs> i don't know yeah it's, it's right. you know it's yeah. like in order to validate charging you 200 dollars and you know yeah. using your dna for the rest of your life in right, their, yeah. in their um, research I, databases. Uh, it's some... like that cognitive shift, isn't it? Between <laughs> yeah. something really important, like, you know, you may have cancer to, oh, you've got a really, you know, you're very likely to have dimples. <laughs> that right. cognitive shift between the two is like, whoa. Yeah. Right. And by the way, you might have some German ancestry you didn't know about. <laughs> and and the person you thought was your father is not your father. You know, <laughs> I mean, these are all yeah. the possible <laughs> things that could come up with genetic testing in one fell swoop. Um, the validity, the validity behind each of those statements, though, differs. Much of the work just begins on receipt of those results um, in in deciding how do how does this now how do you now incorporate this into your healthcare or as we mentioned other things that seem to be extraneous to healthcare. So, Jason, in my test result, it said that I have one of two genetic variants for hereditary thrombophilia, so developing harmful blood clots. Mm-hmm. The credit to the testing company. When you kind of click through, it, it comes up with another page that says stop taking action and you click on that. And then it says, okay, assess yourself with a few questions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then it says, you know, kind of learn to recognize the symptoms, schedule a doctor's appointment. And then here is like a bunch of things that you can do that will reduce any risk that you may do have. So I was like, oh, okay, that's that's kind of good psychom. That's That's giving me lots of information, but mm-hmm. it's so information dense, this website. Yep. And every and, result kind of clicks you through to a whole bunch of other stuff. But I kind mm-hmm. of thought, this is the challenge of Psycom, isn't it, Dan? The, one of the things that we've learned making this podcast is that really effective science communication that really enacts change is, is pretty difficult because we don't, we're not always our best allies in you know, taking in solid, factual-based information and then acting on it in a, a kind of an emotional, committed, habitual way. Yeah, I think it needs a phased approach too. You know, you couldn't overload a consumer with that information all in one fell swoop and then be done with it. You know, I think receiving kind of the summary result, what it might mean, and then over time, um, revisiting some of the action steps you could take is probably a more effective way to to actually impact a health behavior change. Yeah. So the fact that 30 million odd people around the world have done these uh, direct-to-consumer genetic tests. Is that something that you welcome, that you see as an important resource in terms of ongoing genetic or genomic research? I I think I'm mixed about it. I, I, I think I am glad overall that it is occurring because I do think it helps us clinicians uh, open our minds to the possibility. You know, if anything, it sometimes it needs to be Silicon Valley or other uh, direct-to-consumer type initiatives that essentially test the new waters for us, us very pragmatic, stodgy clinicians. Um, <laughs> and and we, we get to observe that natural experiment happening in the wild and then can hopefully identify some signals that we think are worth actually bringing into our routine practice. So on, on that hand, on that hand I, I think it's a very good thing. And, and I, I also want to make the point, it's the... Patients bringing new technologies, new information, new ideas 
to their primary care provider is not new or unique to genetics or genomics. Um, the number of patients I have that have heard about a new diet they want to try, a new type of exercise, they mm. are worried because they've heard this particular environmental exposure might have certain health health risks for them. Um, you know, the, the, the term doctor comes from the, the Latin for students. So we're supposed to be learning constantly all of the time. And our, our patients help push us along to, to learn what is most important to them. So there we go, Dan. Research plus money. I know, yeah. I think it's been really interesting from what we've heard, though. You know, it's clear that science doesn't operate independently from the rest of the world, you know, the commercial, the capitalist world. Um, and so if you're developing new products, if that's video games or construction techniques, you have to consider how to sell this idea to the non-scientists. And also, I guess, do some of the work around what responsibilities you have, what responsibilities you're kind of putting out there into the world. Um, so whether that's, you know, kind of doing some kind of cognitive psychological testing about how to influence someone's behavior, or whether you're enabling, you know, millions of people around the world to find out stuff about their, their kind of genetic heritability of certain diseases. I, I really liked what Jason was saying about the disruptive technology that, that these, you know, online genetic tests are, are providing. Yeah, and the idea that this is actually, it has the potential and has the power to be a really positive force in in research as a driver for innovation, rather than just this kind of slightly sullied thing where people's intentions aren't entirely necessarily kind of noble and abstract. They're, they're kind of commercially focused. It's It's partly about the bottom line. Let's yeah. be honest, I mean, academics is partly about the bottom line as well, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think you can separate the two, certainly, certainly not this day and age. Um, and I think that that sort of disruptive technology also brings lots of positives in terms of how well you can communicate the science to to lots of people who who maybe aren't, you know, subject matter experts as well. You know, they, you can make really funky infographics instead of, you know, of a hundred page report, you can do it in a really funky way. And And I think some of these disruptive technologies are doing that really well. Yeah, there's there's real implications, isn't there, as to how you do SciComm, how you can do it well, how you can do it innovatively. And just bearing in mind how SciComm may be compromised by commercial interests as well. Yeah, and I guess to some extent that's useful. That's a useful thing to remember, not just in the world of obviously commercial or consumer-focused uh, research, but also in academic and, and kind of more pure research because everyone's got those vested interests. Yeah, absolutely. You never know, do you, for the future? Well, thank you, folks, for listening to This Study Shows. Please make sure you follow us in your podcast app and leave us a lovely review. You can find out more information on the show at thisstudyshows.com. And if you'd like to get in touch, then you can tweet us at Wiley in Research. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. This Study Shows is a listen entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Danielle George and me, Marianne O'Hotter. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green.